podcast, cutting edge conversations with the Quant community. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our next installment of Quantcast. I am Nazneen Sharif, Associate Quantitative Finance Editor for Risk.net from our London office. We also have with us today Rob Mannix, who is the Desk Editor for Asset Management at Risk.net. Hi, Rob. Hi, everyone. So our guest speaker today is uh, Andrew Lowe, who has dialed in from Boston. Um, Andrew is the Charles E. and Susan T. Harris Professor, a professor of finance, and the director of the Laboratory for Financial Engineering at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He's also the author of the book Adaptive Markets, Financial Evolution at the Speed of Thought, published last year. Um, Also happy to announce that Andrew will be a columnist for risk for the next few months. Hi, Andrew. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I understand uh, one area of research you've been uh, recently exploring is around how regulatory tightening and loosening tend to happen in cycles, um, you know, given recent proposals by U.S. regulators to soften the Volcker rule and the leverage ratio requirements. This seems very relevant. Um, and your first column, which is already up on our website, also talks about this issue. Um, how exactly do you think an adaptive approach can be applied to regulation to keep in, in line with the systemic risk of the banking system? What are the practical challenges? Well, I guess the main challenges uh, really require a deeper understanding of human behavior because ultimately that's the source of this kind of pendulum swinging from lots of regulation to very little regulation. Uh, once we understand that it's really our own perceptions of risk and how we deal with it that uh, really drive these kinds of swings, we can better manage those swings to try to attenuate them and develop a more stable financial system. So have you identified any drivers at the moment? We have. It really has to do with the fact that risk is a time-varying quantity that uh, changes not only with respect to market conditions, But it also changes with respect to human nature and how we perceive and react to it. So a classic example is uh, when we see stock market volatility at very low levels. After a period of time when the VIX, for example, is fairly low, we then all get used to that period of relatively low volatility. And in that kind of a setting, we we end up being more comfortable taking more risk and uh, ultimately end up taking too much risk. And inevitably, when that kind of volatility spikes up, we all react very negatively and then pull out our investments from the risky assets and put them into riskless assets, the kind of flight to quality or flight to safety that we've seen periodically. That's really the ultimate core of how these financial crises begin and how we need to deal with them in a more systematic way. Yeah. Um, So... um what exactly do you do? Do you link some model of uh, systemic risk uh, to you know, regulatory constraints? How do you go about it? Well, that's definitely the ultimate approach that needs to happen. But before we can do that, we actually need to start measuring these changes in risk and changes in risk perception and behavior. Uh, the old adage that you can't manage what you don't measure really applies here we need to start measuring much more systematically various changes in the risk profile of our general financial system. We've got lots of measures of risk for individual markets and portfolios. We don't yet have an aggregate measure of system-wide risk. 
And until we start measuring that kind of systemic exposure, it's very difficult for regulators and policymakers to respond to them. But once we do have those measures, we can then build in the kinds of automatic stabilizers that we have now in many other industries and applications. What, um, uh, <clears throat> what sort of data would you use to build that, that indicator, Andrew? And, uh, and is that data available but just not being used or not being gathered and put together? Or is it data that would need to be, uh, you know, would need to be um, sourced well my, uh, well, my thinking is that we actually have the data, we just don't have it collected in one place. So, for example, uh, one important source of data is the amount of leverage that's being taken by consumers. Uh, we all know that uh, the consumer market is very large and incredibly important to the global economy. What happens if consumers start taking too much leverage and ultimately end up having to default on some of their obligations? That can cause a cascade of failures in a variety of different kinds of financial institutions, as we saw with residential mortgages in the, the, um, the financial crisis of 2008. So one thing we can do is to capture the actual risk exposures of a large number of consumers using various data sources that are currently available to credit card companies, credit rating agencies, banks, broker-dealers. Among all of these financial institutions, they have enormous pools of data, but none of that data is linked in any way, nor is it easily accessible to regulators. And obviously, there are privacy concerns. So we have to be very important about that. But there are ways of getting access to large amounts of data and aggregating them without uh, infringing on the privacy of the individual customers at these financial institutions. So I think those are the kinds of techniques we need to start exploring. And, and is your sense that if the data were available and, and folks had sight of it, that that would go some way to uh, making the system more stable uh, to protect against systemic risk or is your expectation that regulators would be able to take that data and then to put in place rules a regulatory framework using it that would be more responsive to the sorts of behavioral uh, tendencies that you described i think you need both so in other words having that kind of data and being able to measure these kinds of risks will allow the private sector and consumers in particular to be a little bit more adept at managing their own risk exposures. For example, if you told consumers that a particular segment of the financial system is becoming more and more crowded, as it were, and more likely to exhibit certain kinds of flash crash tendencies or reversals or some significant dislocation, the consumers themselves will begin to unwind some of their positions and if you tell them early enough, it won't be nearly as disruptive as when they're told in one fell swoop to try to reduce their exposures immediately. So having that kind of data and feedback loops will certainly help the private sector to manage its own risk better, but that may not be enough. And so on top of that, regulatory oversight can then fill in the gaps and be able to deal with some of the broader issues that can't be easily addressed. Okay, I, that, that probably leads on neatly to one of the, the, or the second theme that we wanted to ask you about. Um, uh, in your book on adaptive markets, uh, you describe markets as similar to complex evolutionary ecosystems populated by different stakeholders who will adapt to changes uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, change their behaviour on the basis of um, uh, certain behavioural biases. Um, 
We see lots of uh, investors who see cryptocurrencies as a market that's driven entirely by sentiment. Uh, you know, is where there is there are there are not fundamentals uh, driving the market. So I'm interested to understand if you've looked at how the adaptive markets hypothesis might apply in the cryptocurrency market, uh, and more broadly, what your thoughts are on the future of of that market. I have, and I think this is an area where having this kind of an evolutionary perspective provides some really interesting guidance that it's difficult to obtain in any other way. Uh, I know that there are a lot of skeptics of cryptocurrencies on the one hand, and obviously there are lots of enthusiasts on the other hand, and both parties seem to be at loggerheads in terms of whether or not cryptocurrencies are really the, the thing of the future, or are they a flash in the pan? And I think that in order to address this issue, it might be a good idea to look backwards in history and ask the question whether or not we've seen any episodes that are related to this kind of effort over the course of the last century. And the answer is yes, there is. If you look at what happened in the United States in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, you see a very similar pattern. In those days, with the growth of uh, uh, exploration of the West, we had a number of financial institutions that emerged to help finance that exploration, namely lots and lots of banks. And in those days, the banks would issue their own form of currency. They, they issued paper that was drawn on the banks. And every once in a while, a particular bank would fail, and of course, all of the paper that it had issued uh, ended up becoming worthless. And this became such a problem that the United States government had to step in, and in doing so, created a number of regulations, including the Federal Reserve System, to deal with these kinds of bank runs and to establish certain guidelines for what could count as currency and would be backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. So the emergence of the U.S. dollar as a dominant currency really came about because of a need and because of financial innovation in all of the other private currencies that emerged. So if we take that as a kind of a template for what we are seeing today, the same kind of adaptive responses, I think, will ultimately change the way cryptocurrencies are developed and used. In other words, right now, we have many different kinds of cryptocurrencies. Somebody estimated recently maybe 2,000 different cryptocurrencies. And not all of them are as popular, but a few of them are. And the popular ones, obviously, they serve a purpose in terms of the individuals who hold them. But we can easily imagine a situation where, at some point, one of these important cryptocurrencies becomes worthless overnight. If that happens, we're going to see a real crisis. That's when regulators will be forced to step in. And my guess is that if and when they do, out of that will be created a cryptocurrency backed by the full faith and credit of a sovereign government. And at that point, we're going to see these cryptocurrencies become part of the mainstream. Right now, they're, they're uh, a curiosity to most people, uh, a very important source of uh, speculative energy for a small number of people, but it's not really in common usage. At the point at which we see this kind of a crisis and then the reaction to the crisis, out of that will come a particular cryptocurrency that will ultimately be used by a majority of people in the world. And do you have any thoughts on, uh, you know, we, we see some quant hedge funds, for example, who are trading uh, crypto and, uh, as I uh, mentioned in the question, see it as a, uh, you know, a, uh, an interesting environment which may exhibit, uh, you know, may exhibit um, you know, some tendencies that reflect, you know, behavioural biases that uh, market participants have, for example, 
and so you know might actually be quite a good uh, asset for quant funds to trade do you have any thoughts on on their activity whether um you know whether that is a uh, a sensible thing to be doing given the uh, given the picture that you painted there well i would say that any new asset is going to be traded by the speculators those who really are looking to make a short-term profit from the kinds of interests that emerge for these assets so this is really nothing different than any other kind of new technology or asset class that emerges uh, we see this with actually regular currencies as well as other kinds of, um, uh, of uh, investment opportunities. So uh, I think that there's certainly profit to be made, but there's also tremendous amounts of risk. So it's not for everybody, but for those hardy souls who actually can withstand significant losses, this actually might be a good opportunity for them to take advantage of an emerging asset class. Uh, will um, regulated exchanges, um, you know, welcoming cryptocurrency-based financial products, uh, would that help uh, reduce the risk in this market and that kind of, um, you know, bubble-forming tendency if it's a much more regulated market? It certainly will help, but I think we have to be cautious about exactly what they can and cannot do. So, for example, if you have a futures exchange that issues futures contracts on Bitcoin or Ethereum, that certainly seems like it will manage the risks of those derivative contracts because with the futures market, you have a clearing corporation that stands in the middle of buyers and sellers, so you won't have nearly the same kind of dislocation as you might if you had only bilateral contracts. However, the problem is that these contracts are struck on an underlying asset, which is Bitcoin or Ethereum, and if it turns out that those assets run into problems, then you're going to see problems mirrored in the derivatives markets. So having exchanges trade these kinds of instruments provide some protection and uh, reliability of the liquidity aspects of these markets, but they're not going to really prevent any kind of significant market run, and and frankly, it's not really their job to do that. It it turns out that the price discovery mechanism, uh, if it's working properly, uh, will allow investors to be able to buy and sell assets at whatever prevailing market prices they might be, but those prevailing market prices could at some point go down to zero, and so investors could lose everything. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we have to have full disclosure about the risks of these kinds of investments. But for those investors who are willing to take that risk, this could be a very profitable source of investment opportunity. If we could uh, turn now to talk a little bit about um, uh, current markets and um, the uh, the process of central banks unwinding QE, uh, I'd be interested to know what you see as the implications of that unwind uh, across the US and Europe, um, whether you've thought about the uh, the systemic impact it could have uh, on the financial system. Uh, absolutely. And I think this, again, requires an adaptive perspective to fully appreciate the potential for dislocation. So we have now gone 10 years since the financial crisis. And during that period of time, central banks have played a much more active role than ever before. I think it's hard to imagine <clears throat> what it was like 20 years ago for many of us because people get used to the status quo. But 20 years ago, it would have been absolutely anathema for the U.S. Fed to intervene as directly as it has over the course of the last 10 years. The Fed's balance sheet is at $4.2 trillion, which is an extraordinary sum by any measure. And of course, now they're in the process of trying to trim that balance sheet. So as they do so, as they reduce 
their purchasing of these assets, it is going to have an indelible effect on the market because simply speaking right now we have a number of central banks that are big players in the market that are not motivated by purely economic considerations they've got political and social issues that they're grappling with as well so i think we need to understand in what markets do they perform and what's the likely impact of their unwinding without a doubt they will have an impact in terms of decreasing their demand perhaps a reduction in liquidity and therefore a a change in the underlying relative prices of these assets over time. So you mentioned before that, you know, um, cryptocurrencies um, have, you know, they they have uh, a lot of inherent risks. And, um, you know, as as an investor, there's always this risk of, you know, the value completely wiping out. Um, so an, one episode of that was, uh, you know, uh, in February when the VIX spike pretty much wiped out the value of the XIV um, exchange-traded note, which was one of the most popular short wall products trade in the last couple of years. Um, but the, the, the surprising bit there is that it was not kind of opaque like the cryptocurrency world. Uh, it was all the risks were quite, you know, clearly um, laid out in the prospectuses. There was a lot of, uh, I think, media attention uh, as well um, on these products. Um, the, the risks were quite well known. Um, so from an adaptive markets point of view, uh, what exactly do you think happened there? Well, I think part of the reaction of the market is the fact that they did get used to a certain kind of environment, and they were surprised. So investors rarely enjoy surprises, I think, in financial markets. Um, That might be great for a birthday party, but it's probably not a good idea for an investor trying to manage a portfolio. And over a period of time, we've had some very, very low volatility. So it's not surprising that when the VIX spikes to 35 after being at 15 for a couple of years, it is a big shock to the marketplace because people very quickly get used to the status quo. And I think that's something we have to understand about human behavior, and we have to manage through it, particularly for investors that are not used to thinking about some of these subtle issues the way that, say, hedge fund managers or other professional money managers are paid to do. Uh, So when we start developing these exotic products like double-leveraged inverse ETFs or uh, inverse risk ETFs, we have to remember that in addition to the professionals that are investing in them, we're also going to have the public investing in them. And their reactions may not be as sophisticated and as easily anticipated as those of the professionals. So we need to address that issue in how we think about organizing our financial markets. So that kind of um, flows um, quite well into my next question. So there are, you know, all these um, biases in the system and, um, you know, people get used to the status quo. So, you know, there, there are some assumptions to be made there on uh, what people get used to, like, for instance, wall remaining low for a very long period of time. Um, so, I mean, keeping those things in mind, um, it seems like adaptive algorithms are, you know, quite complex to model than, you know, mm-hmm traditional, you know, trading uh, strategies, uh, because you have complex systems and multiple agents. Um, So do you think um, machine learning has an important role to play in the implementation of these algorithms? Without a doubt, it has made a tremendous impact on financial markets. But I would say that more broadly, financial technology has really changed the entire set of market dynamics that we're observing. 
for example, now many institutional investors will be trading on an automated basis their entire portfolios in order to reduce transactions costs. It doesn't mean that they're delegating their investment decisions to algorithms. In some cases, they might be, particularly the more sophisticated hedge funds. But I mean that large institutional investors that have decided for portfolio balance reasons or because of their clients, they need to sell a million shares of Microsoft, they will do so entirely algorithmically in order to reduce the impact of those trades. So we've got algorithms at every level of the financial system, from the very sophisticated hedge funds down to the mutual funds that are simply rebalancing their portfolios because of client supply and demand. And so these algorithms are going to be interacting with each other, in some cases, in some rather unanticipated ways. And we sometimes get flash crashes and other kinds of problems that ultimately require more understanding of how the financial ecosystem fits together. So algorithms play an important role. The ability to trade at the speed of light, that plays an important role. But at some point, we're going to need to sit down and put all of these different pieces together to try to understand whether or not there are unintended consequences of these technologies that are accidents waiting to happen. Is it, um, you know, the, the dominance of algorithms, um, does that mean that if you are able to uh, to get the information about how they are functioning and how they interact, that you would at least be able to understand and maybe to quantitatively model those uh, potential unintended consequences or interactions that you describe. That sounds like it may be, uh, it may actually be an easier thing to do than to somehow try and quantitatively model, you know, fear and greed, human instinct. That's right. One good example of this is what happened during August of 2007. During that fateful month, some strange things were went on in the hedge fund industry, particularly in the subset of funds known as statistical arbitrage funds. So these are hedge funds that all trade in a very particular style. They use lots and lots of algorithms to bet on various discrepancies among large portfolios of stocks. And during the month of August 2007, all of these StatArb managers lost money all at the same time. It was really quite a stunning route that has ultimately been called the quant meltdown of August 2007. And so it, when we study that uh, particular phenomenon, what my co-author Amir Kandani and I found was that because these trading strategies were similar in their composition, when they all exhibited a particular dislocation which happened during the beginnings of the mortgage crisis, they all unwound their positions at the same time. And so you had the prototypical crowded trade, everybody rushing out of a crowded theater and jamming the exits and causing tremendous dislocation. So that's an example where it wasn't people causing crowded trades, it was algorithms that were all trading at the same time. So if we have a better understanding of how these algorithms work and how in some cases they might actually be coordinated in an unintentional fashion to create these market dislocations, we'll then have a better way of preventing that from happening by creating more exits or in the case of these kinds of strategies, uh, different ways for them to unwind their positions in a less disruptive manner. So um, just Going back to the, the machine learning bit, one thing that uh, many detractors of machine learning um, talk about is that 
um, it's difficult for machine learning algorithms to um, account for regime changes or large shocks. Um, and the XIV episode, I mean, it seems to be a shock uh, in the system. So mm -hmm. um, how do you how do you model that? How do you how can you predict something like that using date, large amounts of data and the, the you know, machine learning technologies? Well, the way to do it, the way to do a better job of predicting these kinds of events is to actually bring more data to bear. So part of the reason that people have skepticism, part of the reason that people are skeptical about these machine learning algorithms is that clearly in certain circumstances when market conditions shift rapidly, you're not going to be able to capture that in the historical data. However, they're actually missing an important point about how machine learning is applied. The way that machine learning works in other areas like uh, retail sales, you know, we've all had the experience of purchasing a book on Amazon and having Amazon give us five other books that people who bought that book also purchased, and invariably we all want one or two more of those other five. That kind of an analysis, an incredibly powerful machine learning prediction of what it is that I might want after having purchased one book, the secret to their success is not that they have really sophisticated algorithms, but rather they have enormous amounts of data. And in particular, they have data on various people that are just like me, professors that are teaching at universities that happen to purchase this book, that also purchased a bunch of other books. In other words, they can match my kind of demographic to such an extent that their predictions are much more accurate than just random choices. So the key to predicting these kinds of <clears throat> financial dislocations is we need to actually monitor on a much broader basis the kind of consumers or market participants, if they're more sophisticated investors, that are going to be involved in these types of investment activities. If we can capture a large proportion of the market participants and understand what drives them, and be able to capture their choices over various different market conditions, then we can use that data to say, market participants that have experienced drops in volatility under these circumstances, they've done these kinds of things, so we can now predict that in the face of this current market drop in volatility, they're going to do X, Y, and Z. So using that same principle, we, if we can increase the amount of data that we have to capture the broad spectrum of market participants, we can then make much more accurate predictions about what might happen. Andrew, you mentioned you mentioned that the idea of providing exits. Um, you know, when the herd runs, you provide a way for them to uh, exit the trades that they're, they're in uh, in a way that is less damaging to the wider market. Can you expand on mm -hmm. that a bit? What what you mean by that? What sort of things you've got in mind? Sure. One good example is what the New York Stock Exchange implemented after the October 1987 market crash. They instituted these so-called circuit breakers. Now, <clears throat> a circuit breaker actually has two parts to it, and most people don't focus on both. The first part is when prices drop by a certain amount, they suspend trading. Now, that might actually sound really crazy because when people are trying to get out of a position, the last thing you want to do is to tell them, no, you can't get out of the position. It's a little bit like saying in a crowded theater where people start smelling smoke and see flames on the stage, telling them to sit down and take a minute and relax 
and then we'll all get up and file orderly out of the uh, theater. That doesn't really work very well. But in fact, what a circuit breaker does is to suspend trading for a short period of time so that they can actually create an auction market that allows prices to move much more quickly and effectively to establish an equilibrium where supply does equal demand. So in other words, it allows people to get out of the market, but to get out in large size. So it basically widens the exit doors so that you can get out. And that's the key behind the kind of thing that we need to deal with when it comes to these market-wide uh, dislocations. We need to figure out ways of widening the exit. So that includes things like circuit breakers and auctions to re-equilibrate markets, but it also might include other facilities that would allow investors to make forward commitments to get rid of these positions that they want to get out of at prices that are appropriate for current market conditions. So basically using various different market mechanisms and technologies to be able to find buyer and seller at the appropriate price to reflect the kind of concerns that are affecting the market in the first place. So we've, we've talked mainly about uh, risk, you know, risk management themes, systemic risk so far. Maybe we can uh, turn to talk a little bit about you know, how folks can make money using some of the, uh, the ideas that you've got, Andrew. Um, so I'd be interested to hear how managers might apply adaptive markets theory in trading strategies, perhaps. What sort of market factors they uh, could potentially be looking at, um, how you might use developments in technology to, to do that. Um, perhaps you can tell us a bit about that. Sure. Well, one of the things that really struck me about quantitative trading is that after having met some incredibly accomplished and successful quantitative traders, I realized something that, that really surprised me. It turns out that these very successful quantitative traders all had very deep understanding about market dynamics. In other words, it wasn't that they were simply brilliant at developing equations and various kinds of mathematical relationships. They actually had a very deep understanding about the underlying ecosystem that they were trading in. And it occurred to me that the successful quant traders are actually not that different from successful discretionary traders. In both cases, they had very clear narratives about how they were going to make money, who they were going to make it from, why those other parties were going to be able to give up their profits to them, and how long it might last, and when ultimately would these kinds of opportunities disappear. In other words, they were looking at the system not as a physical system that never changes over time, the way that physicists think of the universe as being immutable and having laws that really last throughout the test of time, but rather they were looking at the system more as biologists or ecologists trying to understand the different flora and fauna of market competition and the predator and prey relationships that they might be entering into. So it, I really began to think about the adaptive markets hypothesis after having looked at the hedge fund industry and seeing a number of successful managers that I thought would be focused purely on the mathematics of the situation, instead focusing on the human behavior aspects and trying to piece it together, ultimately using mathematics to do so, but with the underlying thesis that markets 
are much more like biological systems than physical systems. That, uh, that leads neatly on to the next question that, uh, that I was going to ask, which relates to, uh, to data and perhaps a little bit to how you formulate those uh, hypotheses in the first place. So uh, what I wanted to ask is, given the amount of data that's available now uh, and the technology, specifically machine learning, that is available to help analyze it, um, arguably that opens the door to potentially egregious data mining uh, in quant investing. A lot of folks are very worried about that. What, what can be done to protect against it? Are there specific tools, ways that uh, folks can protect against that risk? You know, this is a really important issue and something that I think needs to be underscored, particularly in the investment community. And I think the most successful users of machine learning are already aware of it and implicitly deal with it in a variety of different ways. So first of all, the basic problem is that data itself is not sufficient for developing a successful investment strategy. Uh, someone once said that the difference between data and information is narrative. In other words, the, ver the worldview that we impose on the data. And I think that's the best way of thinking about this particular issue. If we look at data in and of itself, and we don't impose any particular worldview, then we can probably torture the data long enough so that it'll tell us anything we want to hear. In other words, we can come up with all sorts of patterns from the data that really aren't there, but we can find realizations of those patterns by searching long and hard enough. And this is the classic overfitting or data mining problem where we come up with false predictions that simply happen to be random patterns that we are de deducing from our torturous search. The only way of dealing with it and, and by the way, there is no silver bullet or solution that will eliminate these problems altogether. The only way that we can reliably deal with this issue to some degree is to go into the exercise with a certain kind of perspective and worldview about what it is that we're hoping to find, and after the fact, testing rigorously whether or not, in fact, that thesis is justified by the data that we've collected. And if it's not, we have to basically reject it and then collect new data to try to formulate new hypotheses uh, and constantly be aware that this is going to be a problem that we can never escape from. We are all prisoners of our own experiences. And by the way, this kind of a phenomenon affects not just data scientists, but affects all financial market participants. For example, a discretionary trader that has lived through the 2008 financial crisis he or she will be permanently colored by those experiences. And going forward, they may take those experiences and extrapolate them in ways that are completely inappropriate for those future circumstances. So I think that discretionary traders and data scientists are confronted with a similar problem. The difference is that the data scientist has that problem in spades because the power of the computer can generate so many different patterns that we can pick ones that we like that really aren't there. So to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Is there, a, is there a role at all for machine learning in identifying patterns that you could, you know, in, in helping you to, to form a hypothesis, if you like? You know, can you learn from a machine learning algorithm? Absolutely, you can. And this is probably the next frontier for machine learning. In other words, in the past, we've used machine learning to verify various predictions. But at some point, 
machine learning can be used to actually formulate those hypotheses. So in other words, going backwards and essentially reverse engineering from the data to the theory. And this is probably the most exciting part of AI. It really is giving us a new window on how human cognition and creativity emerges. Basically, what we think of as creativity is the ability to distill interesting patterns from a whole ocean of observation. And now imagine if you can do that at the speed of light using computers to be able to make those types of deductions. So there are a number of computer scientists and data scientists that are working on this right now. We're still in the infancy of this particular business of developing theory-generating data analytics, but eventually I see that that's going to be the, the next breakthroughs in data science. So you mentioned um, overfitting, um, the issue of overfitting before. Um, do you think um, you know, statistical inference techniques can help at all in um, reducing it? Certainly they can help in reducing it. For example, if we decide to take a look at the best results out of 20 different statistical trials, and let's suppose that those trials are statistically independent, we know that the best out of 20 of all of these independent and identically distributed trials will look very different than any one of these trials. We can actually quantify how different it'll look. In other words, we can actually calculate the statistical distribution of the best of 20 back tests if each of these back tests are statistically independent. So that means that we can actually use a higher hurdle for evaluating the best of 20 back tests rather than looking at any one of these back tests and judging them on its own criteria. That's an example where using statistical analysis can provide a bit of a guideline as to how our data snooping activities will affect the outcome and then setting the threshold appropriately higher to be able to take that into account. The problem is that we are all incredibly good at coming up with very, very subtle ways of snooping the data. So even very minor observations, for example, fixed income securities have actually done pretty well over the last 20 years. So if you're invested in bonds any time during that 20-year period, you're going to look like a hero to your investors. That simple knowledge is very difficult to undo or take into account. So I think ultimately we're going to have to be much more vigilant and recognize that in general when we are looking at historical data and developing tests of investment theses based on that data, we are going to be biased on the upside and we'll have to impose a haircut to those kinds of performance analytics. But we can do quite a lot before we even do that in order to be able to get the statistics right to take into account these kinds of data snooping activities. Uh, another issue that comes up, Andrew, is um, that machine learning algorithms, when they're used, uh, are black boxes, and the implication there is clearly that investors might be unwise to invest in something that cannot be explained to them. Um, I'd be interested to hear your views on that, um, You know how it can be addressed, and what the implications of that uh, explainability problem might be for quant investing. Yeah, that's a very challenging question because it really depends on the nature of the investor. For some investors, black box in, for some investors, black box investing is just fine. For example, investors that 
have no problem with losing all of their investment. They're willing to take that kind of risk. They're looking to shoot the lights out in terms of that particular part of their portfolio. And so they think nothing of writing a million-dollar check to a hedge fund manager that will provide no transparency over what he or she is doing. And for that kind of investor, with that kind of money and that kind of return objective, it is perfectly appropriate to invest in a black box. But for a pension fund that has a fiduciary obligation to its investors and planned participants, that would be absolutely irresponsible. Those investors need to think about investing in glass boxes. They need to see through and have the transparency to understand whether or not the particular investments are responsible. Are they discharging their fiduciary duties uh, in a prudent manner to be able to make investments on behalf of their planned participants? So I think that the market is quite diverse in terms of the different types of strategies that will cater to the different investors. It really depends upon what the investor's objectives and constraints are and whether or not they are able to withstand the potential losses and are looking to get returns in that particular way. And is the, to your mind, is the criticism of machine learning as a black box, is that fully justified or partly justified? You know, some folks say that it's not as difficult to explain always as it's made out to be and that some machine learning tools are actually, you know, are, are explainable? Uh, the way that I would answer that uh, has to do, well, um, my view is that that really depends on who's using the tools. The tools in the hands of a master craftsman look very different than in the, in the hands of an apprentice. So it is true that machine learning is a very powerful set of tools that can provide tremendous insights, but can also lead to some very, very inaccurate predictions uh, if they're used in an inappropriate manner. So there's no doubt that the criticism is uh, appropriate in certain circumstances. But on the other hand, I would say that the very best users of machine learning tools do have a deep understanding of what they're accomplishing. And now there are being and now there are better tools being developed to provide an even deeper level of transparency. In a project that we're working on, we're developing methods for interpreting complex deep learning algorithms so that we understand what the key drivers are and how they relate to things that humans understand. That sounds interesting. Can you tell us more about how, you know, in, you know sort of intuitively how you go about doing that? How, how do you interrogate a, a deep learning model? Sure, there are a number of different ways of approaching it. One way is to ask the question, if I change an input very slightly, what does that do to my prediction? And are there various different inputs in my universe of features that are particularly important? If I can identify those key inputs, that will already give me insight into what's driving the underlying predictions. Much the way that when you run a linear regression, some of the factors that are most sensitive to that regression, the ones with the largest coefficients are your key factors. Well, you can do that same kind of exercise with highly nonlinear models. You just need to use these perturbation methods in a somewhat more sophisticated manner. So that's one method. But there are actually even more sophisticated machine learning methods. One area called inductive logic programming uh, tries to reverse engineer a whole sequence of predictions to ask the question, is there a more parsimonious set of statements that can actually capture all of those machine learning predictions? In other words, is there a theory that actually corresponds to those predictions? 
that to me is one of the most exciting areas of computer science and machine learning because it begins to develop a, a kind of a pattern of how humans ultimately develop a deeper understanding of the world around them. If we can crack that code, we'll have gone a long way towards understanding what drives human cognition. What kind of uh, method does this technique, uh, this inductive technique use? Is it some kind of regression? It's not really a regression, but I guess it's related to it. So the basic idea is this. Imagine having a whole universe of various different logical statements, uh, predictions. Uh, if A, then B. Uh, if not C, then not D. Uh, and imagine having, oh, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of these statements in a particular data set. And now, let's come up with a small number of statements where we might be able to explain all of these 100,000 statements from a much smaller set. So that becomes an optimization exercise. Can you formulate a subset of statements whose implications are consistent with all of these 100,000? And if the answer is yes, then you've got a theory. So if we think about this from a physical analogy, imagine if we look at a pool table and we measure all of the various different balls that hit one ball against another and look at the angles that they uh, come up with various, after various collisions. So imagine if we collected all of those different angles and collisions as data and asked the question, does there exist a small set of statements that are consistent with all of those angles and collisions? And the answer is yes, F equal MA. So we can actually deduce these theories from observing large number of phenomena. And that's exactly what this inductive logic programming does. It takes a whole bunch of these statements and tries to come up with, through optimization methods, a much smaller set of statements that are consistent with these different predictions. That sounds very interesting. Um, so, um, so you've incorporated concepts from uh, many disciplines, such as you know neuroscience, behavioral economics, biology, and you know computer science, uh, you know machine learning, um, into your research on financial markets. So, going forward, um, which disciplines can help the most in understanding markets better? What future projects will you be working on? Well, what I'm currently working on is to try to meld the behavioral sciences with computer science and to develop algorithms that are much more accurate measures of human behavior. We've got a lot of algorithms that tell us how humans ought to behave. For example, portfolio optimization, mean variance analysis. And we have a lot of economic theories about how people do behave, but we haven't really encoded them algorithmically. And so what I'm hoping to do is to bring the two together by developing algorithms that are more realistic representations of how people make decisions. And once we have those algorithms, we can then begin designing more sophisticated portfolio management tools and risk management tools to be able to help individuals deal with their own behaviors in a more systematic way. This kind of an approach requires some computer science, some artificial intelligence in particular, some machine learning, some data analysis, and a fairly heavy dose of neuroscience and, and psychology. 
but I think that we're now in a position where all of these different fields are coming together in ways that are really exciting, and uh, I see lots of potential breakthroughs over the course of the next few years. Do you think technology has um, had a big role to play in that, to be able to bring all these disciplines together? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, um, unfortunately, um, we're running out of time. So that 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 brings us to the um, end of this Quancast. Um, thank you very much uh, for joining us today, Andrew. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. I'll catch you again for the next installment of uh, Quancast. Bye for now. Bye.